with me this morning to Revelation 5. Revelation 5. And as you may know, and if you don't, you do in just a moment, you will in just a moment, we are in a series uh, concerning the apocalypse, which sounds dreary, it sounds scary maybe to some, but as we saw last week, really, the apocalypse is about the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Literally, the first words in Greek in Revelation, and and in our English translation here, is the revelation of of Jesus Christ. And so this book, if it does anything, it reveals to us the end. And the end is Jesus Christ. And so that, my friend, is good news. I want to visit this text here. We could have chosen many, but we're going to land here in chapter 5 of Revelation and, and ask the Lord to show us some things here and help us to listen to Him as his word speaks to us. Notice these words here in Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Lord Jesus, we say, Amen, to this text. We say, Amen, to you, Lord. Teach us now, Help us to walk in your ways. 
and obey you in worship, we pray in your name. Amen. Last week, as we said, we saw that the end of the Bible, the end of all things is Jesus Christ. So what is at the end? It is Jesus Christ. And that's good news. Especially good news if Christ has become your brother. Right? I mean, I don't know about you, but that's crazy that we can call God our brother. God our Father. That we can have God, the Holy Spirit, to live in us. What an amazing message we have as Christians. We are not just trying to climb our way to heaven by our good works, which will never happen. But instead, instead of climbing up, one from heaven has come down. And I mean way down. I mean, that's why we put in the creed, the Apostles' Creed, which is what it says, is he descended to the dead. Even those things that are, quote, under the earth. He's been there too. What lurks in the sea, he knows. What lurks beneath the earth, he knows. And he has conquered whatever is down in the depths. And then he has risen anew. Hallelujah. And then he has ascended anew to the Father's right hand. Which is exactly the picture we have here, isn't it? Chapter 4 is a scene of the throne. 1, 2, and 3, introductory, and then you get the seven churches, remember? And these seven churches are, in some ways, in disarray. They each have an issue. They each have a problem. And there are problems in all churches, let me just tell you. Amen to that. But you know what? Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit sent to us are the answer. And we, as a church, need to be aware where we do have problems, and we must cast our cares upon Him, and we must ask to be filled with His Holy Spirit over and over again. It's not just a one-time thing. We need God's Holy Spirit. And He dispatches His Spirit to those churches, and He will dispatch His Spirit to our church if we would ask. I wonder if you would be willing to ask. Even now in your own heart, Holy Spirit, come. And I wonder if we could expect him to actually do that. Even today. You say, well, today doesn't really seem like a good day to do it. It should be sunny outside. No. It's always a good day to invite God's Holy Spirit to fill us anew and afresh. For sin has made us to grow old. But with God, all things made new. Do you notice how many times new is repeated throughout the book of Revelation, much less the scriptures? When Jesus says, I will make all things new, he does it by the cross for us. But that means that even though physically we grow old, in here we can become new. Like little children, the Bible says. And we must. How amazing would it be that the more mature we were in Christ, the more wise we become, we become more like little children. That childish trustfulness in their father. That when I say, it's going to be okay, guys, they believe it. 
Some of us need to hear him say to us today, it's going to be okay. We're going to get through this. We're going to walk through this together. You say, man, I'm in the shadow of death right now. I'm in a deep, dark valley. Or you may say I'm on the mountaintop or somewhere in between. Guess what? He wants to walk with you through all of that. Just as a father wants to walk with his children through times of grief where they get hurt, come here, let me hug you. Or celebration, let me hold you. This is what he wants to do to us. We come empty-handed. He has us in his hand. And what an amazing image that is for us. He wants to gather us around his table to celebrate with us. You know, I remember one of the highlights of my baseball career, which didn't last very long. I started, I started umpiring so I could torture the ones who were good. You know, no, I'm just kidding. I've often thought of it that way. But in my short baseball career, there was one moment where I was catching. I was the catcher, and it was the end of the game. And without going into a long story, it was one of those situations where it was two outs, and, you know, we were ahead, but we wasn't looking good. Bases were loaded kind of thing. And the ball was popped up. I threw my mask off, and I ended up catching it. And the first person on the field was my dad. Picked me up grabbed me up, lifted me up, and just started twirling me around. All the team came around. They were celebrating and jumping. And, I mean, I'll just never forget, like, being twirled around and all this equipment. And, and it's like, yeah, this is, this is a great moment. And I still have that baseball, you know, from that moment. It's a token for me. But, you know, it often reminds me, that's exactly, isn't it, what the Lord wants to do? When, when things are going well, he wants to celebrate with us. He's not stingy. He's not like, oh, man. You know, you got a new truck, you got a new this, you got a new that. Uh, he wants to celebrate with us when good things, when a birth happens, baptize a sweet baby. We want to celebrate. He's celebrating with us. And in the valley, he's crying with us because that's what a father does. That's what a parent does. And he is the example for us, not the other way around. You know, the only we, reason we even know there are bad fathers is because there exists in heaven a good heavenly father that we can measure fathers by. You see the point there? We don't define God by earthly fathers. He defines fatherhood. And he, friend, is a good father. One that wants to gather us up. And, and what we, you know, here's the thing. In chapter 4, it's a beautiful thing. We, we obviously just read one of the chapters. There's two, two throne room scenes here. It begins in 4, ends in 5, properly. It really doesn't end because you're still up there in some kind of visionary way. Even in chapter 7, the throne is mentioned. But, but in, in here, in 5, we get before that, uh, right at the beginning it says, there was a door opened in heaven. And I just, I love that image there's a door that's cracked in heaven. It's like, no matter what you think about heaven, that sounds good. Heaven does, right? Hell doesn't sound good. Sheol doesn't sound good. Doesn't roll off the tongue well. Hades, no. Place of shadows, no. But heaven, that sounds like a good place. And guess what? The scripture says in chapter 4 of Revelation that the door has been opened. And John is invited up. Come and see. He gets to peek in the door. But you know what? 
in the Greek, the tense is that it's, it remains open. In other words, not only John, but because of John and his vision, we too get to see into heaven. You say, well, what is heaven like then? Well, the only kind of clouds you're going to see are smoke clouds because of burning fire. Not the puffy clouds that precipitate rain. But instead what we have is not a temple, interestingly. When he looks in the door, he doesn't see a temple scene. That's what you would imagine, wouldn't it? Like this temple in heaven. Instead he sees a throne. And there's this great throne scene. And all of chapter 4 describes our creator, the Lord Almighty, who is the Father, right? Seated at the throne. But then chapter 5, it's like that's not enough, which is weird, right? I mean, all of a sudden in chapter 5 it introduces a problem, and that is there's a scroll that cannot be opened. Now, the scroll seems, in a plain reading of the text, it's the book of ancient days. It is the book of time. It is the book that includes the end. And who doesn't want to know that? You know, how do things turn out in the end? I mean, that's why you pre-ordered to go see Endgame, or you're still waiting to see it, and you're like, don't spoil it for me, bro. You know, it's because you want to know what happens. It didn't end well in the last one, right? So you're like, surely there's got to be a better ending than this. I mean, this is one good thing when somebody all of a sudden recognizes that something's wrong with the world. Like, that's a great thing to recognize. If you think the world is right as it is, you're blind. You've never met death before. You've never been in the valley of depression before. You've never had fear before. Because this place is not the way it's supposed to be. Which means there's more to the story, right? And here's this scroll, and yet no, it has seven seals, which, you know, we can go into some of the history of that, but the Romans, they would oftentimes, with very important documents, seal it seven different times, which is, again, this perfect number, right? We've had seven uh, angels, we've had seven of these churches, now we have seven seals, seven bowls, seven trumpets, seven judgments, except you get the point, right? There's a lot of perfection going on with these numbers. Nobody can open it. And so John, he understands the importance of this book. He starts weeping, loudly weeping over a book because no one can open it. And then an elder comes over to him and says, hey, John, it's okay, bud. There is one who can open it. And it is alone. All of a sudden he sees in the midst of this whole, and I mean, if you diagram this out, it looks like concentric circles around the center. And Ezekiel has this picture of the throne room with lightnings and the same kind of thing we have here, but also a rainbow, circle of a rainbow around the throne. So, I mean, and in chapter 4, the description of God is not a description of God at all, but the brilliance of God instead. It just talks about, like, the greatest jewels in the world. It looks like that on fire. It's like that's all the description we get of God. It's not like, yeah, he's got a long goatee, you know, uh, Fu Manchu or something like that. It's like, you don't get anything like that. But it's instead the brilliance around him. Because no one can describe God. Because no one has seen God. But there is one who we have seen. There's one who John saw. And there's one that we get to see. And that is Jesus Christ. And so he sees this lamb 
who had been slain, had the marks of being slaughtered in the midst. He says, that one, he can open it. Now, of course, this is the man, Jesus Christ, now in a glorified, resurrected body. And, you know, here's the point of this, because this is crazy. You say, why couldn't God just have opened the scroll, right? I mean, if he's all-powerful, he could open the scroll, right? He refuses to. Instead, he stays true to his word. And if we go all the way, if we rewind back all the way to Genesis, do you remember that when he created us? He created us to have dominion. Co-regency. In other words, humans, were we not? We're called to also rule alongside him. And so he will not open this himself. Instead, he's waiting for a man to open it. A human to open it. And there's only one who is worthy. And that is Jesus Christ. He alone gains the right, is alone the worthy human being to finish out history. To be the one to unroll the rest of the story. And this is why everything centers on the Lamb. This is why John the Baptist, remember he says, there's the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Because that's exactly what this Lamb does. Now, it's interesting that you get the lion of Judah is a lamb. Did you catch that in the text? So he's like, the lion of Judah, he alone can do it. The root of Jesse, which is, of course, meaning David, the son of David. And when he sees him, he's a lamb. And you get these polarities of this vision of Jesus. His victory, you would imagine, was with much equipment and sword. And in fact, his tool was a tree. The cross. And again, we rewind the story. Hang on, go back to that one. Or just, you know, hit your little button there because I guess we don't really rewind anymore. Remember when we first got married? <laughs> we had gotten a DVD player, you know what I mean? And Jessica was like, she was trying to be nice, you know, to me. And we got finished watching a movie. She's like, don't worry, sweetie, I'll rewind it for you. I was like, well, babe, it's just, I think it's already done, you know, like, I don't think we have to do that, you know. Um, But if we were to rewind the story here, all the way back to Genesis, why was the tree there? It was there for judgment. If they were to make the right decision, at the tree, literally, on the tree, the serpent would have been cursed. He would have been done. Judged because God wanted to use us to judge him. But instead, we fell for his tricks and we fall for his tricks. But there's another tree, friend, isn't there? That one will hang on for us, is what we just celebrated. And that won't be the end of the story because all the judgment, the scripture says in Isaiah, was laid on him. All the judgment. All the judgment for you and for your sins. All the judgment for me and for my sins was laid upon him. And he went to the slaughterhouse for us. We're the ones that should have been slaughtered. Instead, he took our place. Vicariously in our place. 
for us, sometimes we're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's, that's good. I, I, I think I really appreciate that, Jesus. Because here's the, here's the real evil. Here's the real evil. We don't think we're sinful. We don't think we have a problem. That would be so bad that we should die for it. Friend, that's the lie of the serpent. Can I just tell you that? In love, that's the lie of the serpent. The reason we have a problem with Jesus dying in our place and for us is because we don't actually think we deserve to die because of our actions. The Bible disagrees. Shall I say that again? The Bible disagrees. It says that if you have sinned, you deserve to die. We reject that. In our nice modern society, we think that's barbaric. The Bible doesn't. And it's very serious when there is a death sentence upon us. Because when somebody tells you that somebody else took your place, we should be shouting hallelujah instead of dreary-faced. Or, eh, which has typically been my response. Because we truly don't believe that our sin is deserving of death. But it is. And it cost Jesus his life. He was murdered on that tree. Suffered on that tree. But he did it so that we can have life and live life abundantly. So that we can today, even in this room, celebrate his good news. (laughs) And so what you have here with the seven spirits... You know, the seven eyes, the seven horns just simply mean he can see everything. Perfect. Remember seven, perfect, perfectly. Horn represents power. So he's got all power and he's got all knowledge. Omnipotent, omniscient. And the seven spirits, Isaiah eleven two says, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of power, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. There's your seven spirits right there. Who is the Holy Spirit. And there's lightnings around this scene which bring us back to Sinai where God descends upon the mountain. And remember, he's just looking in the crack of the door. It's much like the vision that Isaiah has, right? He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. What did he see? High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So you see, if the train of his robe filled up the temple, he was on a throne. The temple was filled up with just simply the back coat of his robe. That's all he could, the whole, now the temple at that time was huge. Remember, that was a Solomonic temple. It was still around. The whole thing was filled up with the end of his garment. He never even got to see the rest of it, right? I mean, it's much like the vision that he sees in chapter 4. You know what that tells me is that God is bigger than anything that we're going through. Anything that... Thank you. Who was that? Thank you. We got some help up in here. And look, sometimes people are out that are my amen corner. So I'm going to need some of you other people to step up and be like, Hey, amen to that, brother. I hear you. If not, I'm going to have to get out there and do it. Amen. That's a good word. (laughs) Listen. God alone 
in Jesus Christ is the worthy one. And he does open up the scroll, which means the story's going to continue, which means that you have an end that is good in Jesus Christ. No matter where you are in the story right now, you can pause it and go to the end, and it's going to turn out well for you. I'm telling you this in a way that that helps me get through very troubled times. When I see deformities or handicaps that are debilitating to the point where, where I'm shamed about my own health and life, I don't know what to do with that always. But I know the end. And you know what the end is? Running, jumping, skipping, singing, happiness, felicity in Jesus Christ. That's what the end is. When I see people tortured to death for their faith, executed, burned, chopped off limp, whatever it is, you know what the hope is there? That there's going to be a new body. You see the newness that we... There's going to be a new... We may be singing a song that is mixed with sadness, but one day, one day, only gladness. All tears wiped away, even though we cry much today. But guess what? Morning's coming. We may be in the night, the dark night of the soul right now, but morning is coming. And just as the resurrection of the dead of Jesus on the first day of the week propelled us to come and worship even today, 2,000 years later, which is crazy to think about a story being told over and over again, and we fall down and we worship Him even right here at His table. That's happening Because of one thing he did. And when we get to heaven, we're going to celebrate all the things that he did. And we're going to be around a table of many witnesses of Jesus Christ. Friend, you are not alone in your walk. You are not alone in your journey. You are not alone in your grief. You are not alone in your fear. You are not alone in your depression. You are not alone in your addiction. But get this. Look to Jesus and no other until He frees you from all of that. And He can free you from your sins. This is what we celebrated last week, wasn't it? He loves us and He has, what? Freed us. And when we read chapter 5, He speaks of the redemption that the Lamb has secured for us. And that redemption is freedom. There's a new song that is sung and the living creatures and the elders sing in 9 and 10. The angels, myriads of myriads, thousands upon thousands. In other words, it's just their way of saying innumerable angels. They sing in 11 and 12 and then all of creation. Anything that is created is going to sing in 13 and 14. They must confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We should allow this heavenly scene to impact us today, this week. The great cloud of witnesses, they're looking on. You know, one of my favorite things to do is is we we go to places... um, and we see these cathedrals, right? 
love to go into cathedrals, these old places. You know, we've, we've done it several times on trips that we've taken. And, and I could stay at Jessica's like, hey, we actually have to go, you know, because, I mean, I would live in there looking at all the art. I mean, it's unbelievable what these people did. But if you notice, when you go into these old cathedrals, one of the things, you know, just like Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, is they've got a painting on the ceiling, right? And what the painting is of are apostles, the gospel writers, the saints of God. And they're all kind of just like looking in, leaning over. And and if you're there and you're worshiping, it's like other people are looking on. And that's exactly what the vision is here, isn't it? I mean, those, those artists were capturing something that's literally scriptural. And that is, there is, in fact, a cloud of witnesses. A cloud of those who were faithful that should encourage us. I just wonder if today, in whatever kind of situation we may be in, if we didn't feel alone because of Jesus... Because of the Spirit, because of our Heavenly Father, yes. But also because of the myriads of angels at His command. But also because of all the saints of God who are looking on, who are clapping for us, who are rooting for us to finish well. I wonder, wonder if that could carry us this week. I think it should. And I think this vision is for you. I think it's for you and you and you and you, 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 you and me. This week, we should carry, you know, just trust me. At our small group, we talked a little bit about this this week. What if all of a sudden when we get into a situation this week, we thought, you know what? There's a lot of people looking on. <laughs> Let's do the right thing. Let's worship because that's what this is, is a big worship service in heaven going on for all eternity, praising the Lamb. Listen, friend, the door is open. The door is open if you would come. If you would come, he would receive you. He invites us even beyond his throne to his table, for we are his bride. Do you believe that? Do you feel that? We are the bride of Christ, his treasure. He invites us even this morning to this table as a representative table of the table in heaven which we will all gather around at the end. Because at the end, it's good news, friend, for those who love Jesus, who have allowed him to free them from their sin. He can do that for you. He can do it today. He can justify you. He can sanctify you. And then, upon death, glorify you, the scripture says. Praise be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.